Hello, one and all. Welcome back to Cafe Penumbra, your cyber cafe where we exchange ideas about current events, hot topics, storytelling, plus all the things. Please do visit us and interact on our sister platform, the Cafe Penumbra Discord server. See the link in the show notes or at seraphimpenumbra.com. In today's episode, I'll be answering your questions and the most frequently asked questions. But first, it's time for the breakdowns. Please excuse this interruption of our regularly scheduled programming for this important message from PLC Media Lab. This announcement has been a very long time in the making, and let me say it this way. In 1993, I found myself a multiple college dropout struggling, and I created a DIY vision quest in hopes of becoming unstuck. Over the next 15 years, I painstakingly recorded my findings in journals. I spent at least three years after that editing and organizing. And finally, 30 years later, it hurts my feeling to say that number, PLC Media Lab and I are thrilled to announce that my debut opus, Living Penumbra, will be available to the public in just about 12 weeks. So let me read you the tagline. This is, I think it's called a blurb. Everyone struggles to figure out who they are and what to do with their lives at some point, right? I took it personally. When I decided to embark on a modern day vision quest to figure it out, my friends and family thought I was crazy. Maybe I was. I was positive that a cosmic intervention would deliver me to a heightened sense of identity and purpose when I declared my intention to the universe and followed the signs and synchronicities. It did. Over 20 years ago, I left my world behind to embark on an amazing journey. Living Penumbra is an untainted and sometimes chilling account of that journey told through a series of intimate journal entries spanning over 15 years. We will start pre-sale in a few weeks for those of you who may be interested. And of course, we'll post updates on the website and on the socials. The next milestone uh, along that journey, as far as I know, will be we'll do a cover reveal. So it's the book itself is in production with the publisher currently, and it will be released under the imprint of PLC Media Lab, of course. And I should have a proof of the cover. Then we'll do a cover reveal. Um, and let people know how they can order a pre-sale copy. So there's that. I'm super excited. It's been such a long time. We do have an episode coming up where I talk a little bit more about the making of the journey itself and the book itself. For those of you that may be interested in that, super, super excited. More details to follow. All right. Thanks very much. See you next time. We now return to your regularly scheduled programming. There's no breakdown today, really. I did feel like it was important to address world terrorism. It's just really a hard pill to swallow that a religious belief is leading you to a place where massacring innocent people is ever going to be justified. Really, though, what I do want to focus on in place of today's breakdown is maybe just a word of advice or maybe just some food for thought. I was having a conversation with an old friend of mine recently on the phone a couple weeks ago, and 
I was lamenting about the struggle of being impacted by all of the brokenness, not just in the world, but my own brokenness. And I feel like the struggle and, and part of this broken feeling is just feeling outraged and horrified and shocked and appalled and maybe even held accountable because we live in this country and we're subsidizing a lot of terrorism. I think what it comes down to is just feeling like, I don't know what I can do. I don't know how, I don't know how to fix it. It's broken. I have to assume that a lot of people feel the same way. I have been encouraged and uplifted by some of the things that people say on social media. And I have made posts, but mostly it's, I just, I have a fear that something that I say that's trying to do good is going to incite some outrage. And, you know, sometimes those aren't really real fears, I guess. I've wanted to be careful about what I've said. And let me just go off on a tangent just because it seems like it would be fun. Uh, And this is something that has been bothering me. And it's not related, but it is related. But it's this. I feel like, and I didn't really research this, but I want to say it was about the early 1980s when Crayola first changed the name of their color. So there, there used to be a color that was a peach color and it used to be called Flesh. And Crayola kind of did me proud because at some point they retracted that and replaced it. I believe it's just peach now. And then I do also, I do also think that they have included a range of flesh tones that is more inclusive. I feel like more recently, maybe going back to the 90s and since, there has been a discussion, at least in the cosmetic and fashion and related industries, we're we're just not using language that isn't inclusive. So you might remember, I think they actually, this is something that still exists, but I, pantyhose, nude, what color are they? And, and that was, you know, that was how it was. And I, I do think that a lot of brands have realized that it's going to cost your business. And I know that when, when there's a brand that is still using um, an inappropriate term like that, then collectively we generally boycott them. You could argue that saying that something is flesh toned is describing a color but it's describing a particular, or I should say when it's describing a particular color, and usually it's pale, if, in case you're not aware of this, or, you know, I could certainly stand to be corrected, it's, it's considered racist because it's, it's just declaring in this way that this is the color, this is the, the default color for what flesh is, and it happens to be pale. And what I think a lot of people probably are completely unaware of is that pale skin is not the default. It is, in fact, a minority. And maybe that's why white people are going crazy. But anyway, so I am working on a project that involves... We're, we're way out. I'm working on a project that involves 3D printers. So I've taken it upon myself to research the, the makers of these machines to ensure that I purchase or make a purchase that is most aligned with what I want to use the machine for and and what have you. And anyway, so this person was was doing a review on a particular 3D printer 
And his main complaint was that the resin that he purchased was not what he ordered, but they substituted it with this quote unquote skin colored resin. And I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure that's a yesterday term, but I held out hope that he wasn't referring to white people's skin color. So I watched a little bit more of the video and there was no uh, recall of that term or, you know, sometimes they can go back and edit it and put in some text that corrects an error. And I I clicked off the image because I was just uncertain of how I wanted to proceed. And some of that, I think, comes from all of this backlash that we see on social media constantly where somebody makes a post and then everybody jumps in to argue why they're wrong or, you know, start an argument or whatever it is. And generally, when I see something on social media, and I do kind of think that YouTube is a social media, it's a little different, but it's kind of a social media. If I don't, I believe in in that thumper theory from Bambi back in the day, where if I don't have something positive to say or something nice to say, generally I'm just not going to say anything because there's enough hate out there already and I don't need to add to that, right? And, you know, who am I to to comment on somebody else's, you know, post? Like it's, I'm not the police, right? But then I thought, I can't, I can't leave that there. So I started leaving a comment and I noticed that somebody else had made a comment that very gently suggested that using skin color was maybe not the best choice. And they did it in this way that was incredibly generous, which isn't representative of how I really wanted to approach it. But the person, um, the original poster didn't pick up on what this commenter was putting down. And I think maybe because it was so gentle. So here's here's a case where maybe maybe gentle isn't the right approach, right? So I didn't want to attack this person, but I couldn't walk away from it and feel like um, I'm the person that I want to be, right? So, you know, I kept it simple. I just said something like... Um, Using skin color when you're referring to a narrow portion of the population is very much considered racist. And hear me, I don't think that this person intended to be racist. And that's kind of like where I stumbled. But then, you know, I kind of thought about that. Um, For me, it's a postcard. I have a postcard um, that's a quote of, first they came for the Jews, but I wasn't Jewish, so I didn't say anything. And then they came for black people, but I wasn't black, so I didn't say anything. And then they came for the gays, but I wasn't gay, so I didn't say anything. And then they came for me and there was nobody left to say anything. So I do kind of feel we do have a responsibility to to speak up when we see, and I don't want to like categorize things as minor. I didn't want to full on attack this person. That's never who I'm going to be. I'm never going to respond to ignorance or anything with hate like that's that's like that kind of is what is happening in my opinion in part in Israel and that's just not who I am and it's not what I'm about and I don't apologize for that so anyway so I made this comment and I just said you know maybe make yourself available to the work of bell hooks because I feel like that it's it's very nuanced how you know even if you're not like 
preventing somebody of color from getting a job, you're still perpetuating white supremacy when you're saying skin color and referring to white skin. They didn't respond. And I don't expect them to, and it doesn't really matter. I just felt like I had to say my piece. And that was very easy because there was a little box under the video where I could leave a comment. And that's what I did. And hopefully the person will be able to hear what I'm saying and think, I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to change how I do things from, from now on. And that's sometimes the best that you can do. Going back to where I trailed off from what I intended to talk about, I was having this conversation with, with somebody that I consider to be very wise. And like I said, lamenting about the brokenness and just feeling like helpless to make a difference and make a change and participate in a repair. And what my friend said to me is a pill that I'm perfectly, is a pill that I'm still trying to swallow. And I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of flood the world with all the beauty and love your heart can hold. Put your beautiful art into the world for people. Set an example. And I think that's good advice and I think that's good information. And the reason I struggle with it is that it still seems a little complacent. I'm not challenging what it was that he said. I've actually challenged myself to, no matter what, put something beautiful out there. I think it's sage advice. And there is perhaps an unhealed part of me that is too cynical, that watched the Care Bears as a child and appreciated the sentiment, but also rolled my eyes because all your positive vibes and $5 still won't get you a cup of coffee. Because I live in the real world where positive vibes are kind of a fart in a hurricane. And I know that a lot of people can be very triggered when people say, you're in my prayers or sending good vibes. And I get it. And it's just language. If I'm praying for you, it doesn't mean that I'm putting in a good word with a sky wizard. It means that I'm spell casting for you. And good vibes are intention setting. And I know that that's something that is very divisive for a lot of people. And I generally won't post on social media that I'm praying for somebody. I think I would reach out directly to them. But it's kind of hard when we live in a world where I can't say I'm sending you prayers without getting attacked. And I think that part of that has to do with Christianity. And, you know, it's no secret. I grew up in a, what I call a Baptist hostel church as a child and very much have renounced that. It's not my belief structure, but I still think that there is some element of truth to it. I think it's very fascinating that a lot of Christianity and the rituals of Christianity or that are associated with Christianity really take their root from pagan religions that outdated Christianity by centuries. But I do, I, in my opinion, and I don't know, but you know, you, when, when you don't know something, it's very much human nature to make it up. So like we talked about gratitude a couple of weeks ago, and I make up that when people are reacting to prayers and good vibes, they're reacting to, in part, that anti-Christian rhetoric. Like, how dare you speak to your sky wizard on my behalf? And also a little bit to, well, that's good for you. You sent a prayer. So congratulations, you voted, you, you participated in the change. I don't really think that that's what everybody mean, means who says that. So, and it's one of those things that I just know is a hot button issue. So 
I generally don't engage with it. But I just wanted to reference how language is just like, people just are trigger happy. Like you say that word and I'm just going to react, right? But, and, and here's the nugget for today. What if, what if creating something beautiful, what if creating something beautiful from within me, what if that isn't about putting the beauty out into the world for the people? What if this act of creation isn't a fix for the problems that are out there, but for the problems that are in here? And I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's what was meant when I had that conversation with my friend. And I don't claim to know. I'm just planting a seed, like I said, food for thought. But really, if you're on a channel that is pouring love and beauty into the world, where's the harm in that? I'll say this again. I will never greet hate with hate. I do know there are organizations collecting donations. And once again, I, I want to invite you, if you're aware of resources that are related to anything we've been talking about, please jump into the Discord. Share, your, share it on your socials. Share it with me. I'm happy to put links on, on my website, for example. And I'm not saying that my reach makes a difference. But I think that the more we can repeat a message, it's kind of like the people's microphone. Like, oh, I saw this link on Instagram and now I'm seeing it on Seraphim's website. And then, you know, the other, last week I saw this inform. I think that there is something to repetitive and, and really putting a message out into the world. So that's that. That's the breakdown for today. Question number one. This question um, is probably one of the most frequently asked questions. Um, Time Out New York refers to you as the excellently named Seraphim B. Penumbra. How did that come about? So I always thought that that particular quote came from Chi-Chi's people. Um, that's Chi-Chi Valenti from Jackie Factory and Mother and Night of a Thousand Stevies. And, but I got the vibe from Chi-Chi that she really thought that I should just be using my birth name which was a really good idea, but I had such a weird relationship with, with my birth name. So anyway, I was very young. I had been using just the letter B as a moniker for several years at that point. After spending a little bit of time with Ram Das, who of course wrote uh, the quintessential book on existence, Be Here Now, and that just seemed to be a good fit. However, and this is vanity and ego, I received some press, a press notice for a promotional appearance, I think for Charlie Atlas's Lee Bowery film. And I, I also did something in the, in the West Village Halloween parade for Charlie's film. And the credit um, just made mention of me as the letter B, but in print, it just didn't sell that well. It looked like a typo. And I, I wasn't going to be able to be there to explain why I was just using a single letter. As a moniker, I loved what it represented, but in terms of branding, I guess, and I don't think that was a commonly used term in those days, but anyway, so I was invited to do a pageant of all things by Sweetie, who I love and admire. May she rest in power. She was very good to me and I was an enormous fan. So despite feeling like, I think it was the voice who described my aesthetic as a cross between old Hollywood glam and comic book superhero, just to paint a picture of my aesthetic in those days. Now it's a little bit more Mary Poppins, but you know, things change. So in my head, I was wondering why I was ever invited in the first place to compete in a pageant. But Sweetie saw me at, I think, at, an, at a gig that I had done. And I think that led to her invitation. And I figured it couldn't hurt for me to, you know, see and be seen. It seemed like a good move to, to participate. So I did. And 
So ahead of the event, Sweetie calls me up and she asks me how I want to be billed. And I knew then that I didn't want to use the letter B again. So I said, let me call you back in five minutes, please. And she said yes. And I was already very much about seraphim from literally from the Bible, who were angels created by God to sing his praises. And of course, I remembered that angels were genderless. And so that struck a chord. And I definitely wanted to convey a sense of otherness. So I did choose seraphim for those reasons. Uh, also loving that it was plural. And penumbra actually was part of the working title for a book that I was working on. And in astronomy, a penumbra is an area of shadow that inherently exists between an area of, of light and an area of darkness. So I called Sweetie back and I told her what I came up with. And she said, do you know what that means? And I said, yes. And she said, okay. And that was that. And that was in 2003, if I recall correctly. So I have been using Seraphim Penumbra for 20 years now. Next question. What are your thoughts on drag race and have you, will you consider it? I think I literally just heard a prison clench from legal, but okay, let's spill the tea. I don't even say that. I will say over the years, a great number of people have asked me why I don't do drag race. And my answer hasn't changed, I don't think. I've never auditioned is the main reason. <laughs> and while I do consider myself a drag performer, I have never considered myself to be a drag queen. But it's undeniable that Drag Race and RuPaul have done a lot for visibility. And I wonder if that is a good thing overall. I feel like visibility is important, but I feel like we're seeing a lot of backlash from the conservative right, which I do believe is more being, it's more targeting trans people than drag queens. But I wonder if maybe being a little underground can be a good thing. Just again, food for thought. But I wonder if we're seeing this pendulum swing because drag has just been very mainstream for a lot of people. Just a thought. Anyway, in addition to that, there have been a number of problematic issues over the years with regard to trans people, trans people competing, etc., but also controversial language. And even they tended to favor queens who were closer to quote unquote passing, which is problematic. And until more recently, off-brand queens didn't really perform well. And, you know... If we know that I wasn't a pageant queen, I think it's safe to assume that I was pretty off-brand, right? I will say that it does seem that RuPaul or the people at WOW, the production company that um, produces Drag Race, are responsive. So they took out the term she-male early on, which was a sign of progress. And, you know, here's an interesting side note. Drag has always existed in part to push the envelope. Drag artists, definitely some of them at some times, push the envelope and use language and reclaim language, right? In defense of RuPaul, I feel like if there's anybody who has the right to use the term tranny, it would be one of us. And I think that that's a yesterday word. And I'm not saying that RuPaul said that, but, you know, in, in the way that drag, it's not operating outside of the restrictions of society. But, you know, you're talking about a very marginalized group of people. So, I mean, I think in my head or I make up, that's part of why the people, whether it be RuPaul or the production company, thought, um, we, we're okay. We're okay to use this language. Except for the following point. When we're in a gay bar giving a monologue to a fairly constrained audience, first of all, you can never know how something that you say is going to land, right? But the difference is... When you're, when you're using this, this language in a closed environment versus on national television, 
again, you don't have the opportunity to say, well, you know, these are the reasons why we feel it's okay for us to use this language. Like you still kind of have to play by the rules in a way that maybe you wouldn't as strictly if you are performing in, you know, like I said, a, a closed environment. Another, another challenge in general, and I don't blame RuPaul or, or World of Wonder, most people don't consider that the few remaining bars and clubs that actually have a budget to pay talent at this point usually save up their wad to blow on a famous act, which is somebody who's been on television, right? Because they need that money to have an ROI. They need to make that money back in liquor sales by paying that to the performer. I get it. It's a business. And if you happen to be more subversive or counterculture or just not on television, you're still competing with those same people for the same dollar. So to an extent, and I'm not saying that anybody has more or less right to, to have a platform. I will say it's, I feel kind of like I'm competing with them, although I'm not like really, and I don't, I don't really, I haven't been performing much lately anyway, but I remember um, struggling with bookings because I'm not famous enough maybe, or whatever it is. But that that was something that wasn't really the case before Drag Race started. And lastly, and this is something that is its own rant. I realize even though it's reality television and far as I know, it isn't scripted, but I find it odd that the judges are often not drag queens. So it seems odd that they're judging a craft that in many cases they know nothing about. And what's more pervasive, and I can't blame Drag Race for this, but there has evolved what I dub the panelist effect. And it's where everyone in the world seems to think that they're responsible for contributing this ongoing commentary on what they think drag should be or the correct way to do drag. Facebook is one thing, but the statement, if you're not wearing heels and substitute whatever it is du jour, nails, hair, are you even doing drag? And I feel like this is something that's everywhere, but apparently they don't teach kindergarten anymore or something. I thought this was an art form where everyone gets to decide for themselves what degree of participation that they want to engage with. Like, and maybe I'm just still old school, but there are all different kinds of drag and people are still inventing new ways to do drag every single day. I'm just saying... There is room for everyone to express themselves as they see fit, and everyone is going to approach it with a varying degree of skill and ability or experience, and they should be allowed space to figure it out without everyone mouthing off like they're Waldorf and Statler. There are enough mean bitches in the world. I think you can slay without being a wart. Just saying. We're already talking about a marginalized community within a larger, also marginalized community, and everybody is infighting. People... They are coming for you. Can we worry about whose ratchet weave after our rights are no longer on the table? Sorry, that was a rant. Next question. Was there ever talk about doing a reality show? That's very interesting to me because that was, it wasn't a secret, but it, we never talked about it, but it was never officially a thing. I it did seem inevitable that at some point I would f create an artist collective and I would still love to recreate parts of that. And so we found a house and it was massive and we set up recording equipment and filming and lighting. There was studio space and yoga space. And the part of the concept was that we would all shoot footage and stitch it together into a show about what it was like, this group of artists under one roof and kind of see what would happen. And it had promise. I was really excited about it to a point. And it was also pretty well doomed from before the start. 
And part of that was because there was a lot of drugs and alcohol, which I don't strictly oppose. Um, And to be fair, it was a, a low point for me as well, mostly with drinking. But almost immediately, I felt unsafe. And I started isolating back in 2018. And then when COVID happened, I was like, see, the problem with filming was that there was one particular member who refused to sign off on us using his image, which meant that we could never film when he was around, which was most of the time, without having to shoot or to reshoot around him. And nobody, myself included, was interested in doing that. And so by May of 2020, I bailed and I went to live at my grandmother's house again to get myself together and safe and ride out the storm. So that's what happened to the very short-lived or never-lived reality show. Is it true that you're an animation student? It is. Um, I, it's, it has not been a secret. I've been fairly vocal about it. I actually went back to school that same fall of 2020. I'd been working, as most of you I assume know, that I'd been working in hospitality for decades, partly because I was good at it and it was lucrative and it worked very well with being a performer. But when COVID started, it was very clear to me right away that hospitality would be very slow to recover and probably wouldn't recover to the way that it was. So I definitely took advantage of what was already a train wreck, hoping to come out better off on the other side if I could just survive it, right? What a lot of people may not know is that I actually started off by going to art school um, immediately after high school, and I was painting dreamscapes. I feel like I talked about this on another podcast. But at the time, I was kind of animating because I was using time-lapse photography so that people could watch my work rather than look at it. So animation came from wanting to create animated paintings of my dreamscapes and, of course, a new platform for storytelling. So as of today, when we're recording this, I will be finished with the coursework for my Bachelor of Science in Computer Animation in 25 days, and I'm waiting to exhale. So there's that. Whatever happened to PLC Comics? I can say some things. Um, If you're not aware, PLC Comics was a platform that I created in 2015 to support a graphic novel collaboration between myself and the writer. It started off very organically. His girlfriend at the time happened to be a customer in a bar that I worked at. And she was very much a fan of the fact that I was bartending in full regalia at this college dive bar next to Brown University. And that was how we met. And within a few weeks, he was all about this premise for a graphic novel that would be based on my name and likeness. He was very inspired by some of the... um, images on the socials. And, you know, remember when I said uh, comic book superhero. So those are the images that he looked at. And creating the premise we kind of collaborated on, it is kind of a long story. His concept was fantastic. We worked on what what it was going to be. And then he kind of became unhinged in the 11th hour and we could no longer move forward with the project. And there was nothing really to do but leave it. Um, And the reason that I'm being a little bit guarded about it is because we do have kind of a documentary in the making that tells the story of how the project came about and what it was and what happened. And the main reason that I want to do that is because none of the artists ever got paid because we never published. And we'll talk about that also. But we talked about hiring a new writer, which if you can imagine trying to retrofit a new story into already completed panels... Probably it could have been done, but it didn't seem, well, we certainly couldn't find a writer, but 
had we moved forward with that, the intention was to still honor the existing contract with the original writer. But he wasn't, obviously, he wasn't happy about that at all. So we basically sat on it until we got the idea to create the documentary. And I wanted to tell the story because it was fantastic. And like this, the concept and the premise, I think, were fantastic. And um, I want to be able to share the work of the artists and tell a little bit of their stories. And there's still no money involved. So it's very much a passion project. But if it ever earns any money, then rightly, it would go to the artists who who created work for for that uh, comic. Is it true that you performed at the opening of the Museum of Sex? Wow. There are only so many people in the world who would have even known that. So it's kind of impressive. The answer is kind of yes and no. That was a long time ago, like 2003. 2004 I should have looked it up uh as you know I was working with a group of uh with a collective very underground and one of their offshoot or sister groups was called dance tube which was a largely improv performance dance troupe and they got the booking and they invited me to participate with them so I say yes and no because I was a guest and I wasn't billed as having um Performed at the opening, but I was there. I did perform uh, with Dance Tube. So, yeah, that's interesting. The number one most frequently asked question, sadly, is, are you a man or a woman? Nope, I am not a man or a woman. Yeah. I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like if somebody wants you to know, um, they'll tell you. So I, I, I did include this question on purpose because I wanted to be able to say my answer, but who gives a shit? Like why? I remember, <laughs> I remember a lot of times grownups, kids too, but when a grown up would ask me if I was a boy or a girl, I was embarrassed because it meant that I wasn't, um, I wasn't doing a good job. Right. But also like kind of creeped out, like, other kids are mean and, and whatever, and it, I don't think it landed any better, but it was less creepy because, you know, as a child, I'm thinking, well, when when our cat had kittens, we sexed them by looking under their tails. So when an adult is asking a child if they're a boy or a girl, I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's just too personal a question. Like, you're looking under my tail. Like, why do you care? Why... Why is that important for you? And I think that the answer is, you know, making it up, that it's uncomfortable for people when it isn't clear. And if that's the case, why are you asking me, which is going to make me also uncomfortable? Like, I'm not responsible for your uncomfortableness. So, yeah. Why the no wigs? Hmm. I I will say that I occasionally wear wigs. I, I have a few. Um, usually exclusively when I'm promoting for something that has nothing to do with myself. So if I was hired to promote your party, then I feel like if I'm not on the bill, it doesn't matter what I look like. But if I'm promoting something where my name is on the bill, then I'm going to look like myself, if that makes sense. And But the decision to not wear hair as as my alter ego, if you will, Came back in 2002 when I had a sister who had leukemia. I know, like it makes people feel bad that they asked. But if you're asking somebody a deeply personal question, I feel like you should be prepared to be made to feel badly because it's none of your business. Like, and I, 
have always lived my life very open. Um, what, how, what's the phrase? Like an open book or because I feel like comfortable with, I think now maybe it's just something that I was conditioned to, but like, you know, even, even when people ask my pronouns, like I'm not generally like super bent about that because I know that people make mistakes and I feel like I can generally sense when they're being hostile. But anyway, so this question about hair. So I had a sister who had leukemia. I think initially it blew my mind that her, like her insurance company maxed out. So there were only so many people who they would pay to have their blood tested to see if they would be a potential donor because what she needed was a bone marrow transplant, right? Excuse me. We, We had an event and... And during that event, my sister's best friend, as well as the best friend's mother, shaved their heads in solidarity. And so did I. And I fully intended to grow my hair back when she grew hers back. But it struck me, I was living in New York at the time and uh, traveling back to New York from Massachusetts. I really reflected on, for the first time, really, how hair was so central to a to some women, to most women, maybe, and juxtaposed with the idea that part of drag was kind of satire of what is masculine and feminine. And I thought about how silly it all was. Like, was my sister any any less feminine because she didn't have hair? And I feel like that question, the answer to that question would be different based on the people that you asked. And, you know, wigs have certainly come a long way in the last 20 years, but they're still very hot and the hair snags on everything or it sticks to your lipstick or your lip gloss. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it's part of my me, my meanness. Is that a word? It's not a word. It still boggles me. And this happens fairly regularly when I'm in like even a queer space and, and people come up and tell me that I've forgotten my wig. First of all, do you really think that I spent at least two hours in makeup and wardrobe and then casually forgot a wig or do you think that I intentionally didn't wear a wig and you think you're hilarious because you're not that tells me that even in the rainbow community there's still a lot more work to be done to dismantle those gender constructs so yeah that's why I don't wear wigs what kind of makeup do you use part of the answer is all the makeup I use a mix of theatrical and beauty products I used to swear by Max Factor for my foundation, but it was discontinued. So I do generally still use a pan stick of some kind for my foundation, some theatrical powders and some beauty powders. I almost always exclusively use drugstore mascara because my opinion is that the formulas are all pretty much the same. What you want to do is find like an applicator, a brush that does the right thing for what the desired effect is. For eyeshadows, I do have, that's one of the places where I splurge a little bit. I have some staples. I love Makeup Forever. I love Ardency Inn. I love Makeup Geek. Used to love, well, I still love it. It's just gone. Um, I have a lot of products by NYX. Whatever gets it done, really. Like I don't have any allegiance I happen to have a lot of Morphe brushes. I have a lot of Sigma brushes. I have a lot of MAC brushes. I don't think it matters. Like, use what you have and then, you know, add to your collection. People always want to know if I'm wearing MAC for some reason. I'm like, I'm wearing some MAC, but I don't don't know of anybody that uses any, like, a complete line for an entire look. Will you ever go back on tour? I mean... I would love that. Absolutely. My focus, I mean, I've been in school, but my focus has been less on being an entertainer and more on curating. 
I will say there isn't anything in the pipeline that leans in that direction, but I would, um, I would definitely return to the stage with a purpose. Otherwise was the last tour that I did. And that was, that included a dialogue that was very important to me and a show that I was very proud of. So if I wrote a show um, like that, or if some other opportunity presented itself, I would, um, and probably should before I'm too old. I guess I've become the type of person that will only call you if they have something to talk about. And I do have plenty to talk about. I'm just kind of like circling different fires lately, if that makes sense. Did we see you in the movie Short Bus? Hmm. That is an interesting question. And part of the reason that I think that it's interesting is the word itself. Um, It's been the subject lately for some conversation. My answer is not if you blinked. I was there. I was peripherally involved. I guess I was an extra. And it was a long time ago. I don't remember if I got a credit and wasn't actually in it or if I was in it, but it wasn't long enough to get a credit. I don't remember. It was an amazing experience to be on set and watch it happen. Like, how often do you get to be on the set of a movie? And like, you know, my dork self is going to show like any, any making of any movie pretty much as long as I watch the movie, but not always. Any making of, I'm there for that. Like, especially lately, I've been into like behind the scenes of stop motion animation in particular. So like to be on a a real movie set was an experience that I was very grateful to have been a part of because it hasn't happened again since and it hadn't happened before. And of course, I knew a lot of the people. I can't say that I actually ever really knew what it was about. My understanding at first was that it was experimental and it was kind of about cinema in this way and asking the question, can you, I think this is what it said, can you have a movie with developed characters and a plot and a storyline and also show erections and orgasms? Because in in American cinema, those things are often cropped out or edited out, mostly for rating purposes. But I think my understanding of what the question at its inception was was can is this going to add to the story does it subtract from the story when these things are edited out and at one point john asked me why i hadn't sent in an audition tape i remember and the reason was because while i do consider myself to be sex positive as a trans person as an intersex person my senses tingled a little bit around that discussion and i didn't think that i would be exploited but i didn't want to exploit myself So I said that, and he said a version of, it's about sex, not bombs, and the artists who created it. And I thought, well, then I'll send in a tape. So I did. Sex, Not Bombs was an event that was curated by a collective of artists that I keep referring to, the Never Never Party, and actives and rebels, and it was very much an anti-war protest. It was very much in response to 9-11, and it was a pansexual, polytheistic play party installation, and I worked with the collective and curated it and apparently made an imprint on a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. But when I was on the set of Short Bus, I realized that I completely misunderstood what was happening. And also, like I said, how many times in your life do you get to to be on a movie set? So it was kind of awesome. And I talked about in the the Vision Quest episode, I, I can't, my brain will not remember when I talked about what things, but John was a hero of mine. So I wanted to be near him and listen to every word that he said. And it's one of the mysterious ways I think that life and art work together. So yeah, I should probably watch that again. It's been a long time. What does PLC stand for? Well, 
We stand for storytelling, conversation, inspiration. PLC does, it does, the, the letters represent something. And I know some people know it's, it came from those days uh, back in the Never Never. I think that this would have been 2004, maybe. But I, I have intentionally kept it a little bit of a mystery. In fact, let's have a contest where people can guess what they think it means. I think that would be fun. But PLC Media Lab, like I said before, is a business that I set up for publishing and as a production company. And of course, it is it produces this podcast and represents me when I do accept bookings. And we're, we're producing a series of short format animated features currently, which connects back to the animation program. And there are a couple of other projects that I'm in, I'm not quite ready to talk about. Uh, and of course, there's a YouTube channel now. But like I said, I took basically what was left from PLC Comics and built PLC Media Lab. I think it's just kind of in the spotlight now a bit more because of the podcast. And as well, we've been more active on the YouTube as well. Can you talk about any of the animated features that you're working on? I can say a little bit. I don't want to give away too much, but one of them I'm very excited about because it was a collaboration between myself and some of the students in my program. And it came from, the premise came from a recurring nightmare that I was having. And there was just something really cool about it. So we took that and used it as a premise and we built a character and a story. And once we had that, I wrote the script. And we decided to, just recently, decided to hybridize the production. So our characters will be stop motion maquettes and some of the environments will be CG. And of course, I'm obsessed with stop motion animation. So I'm super excited to be able to work on that. And that's about midway through pre-production. I'm actually prototyping the characters now and storyboarding is happening. So yeah. And let's see, we talked earlier about animated paintings. So another one of the shorts that I'm working on is reverse engineering a mural that I painted at least probably more like 25 years ago, such that you will be able to see the painting come to life while you watch. It's not exactly time lapse, but it's kind of inspired by that idea that I've talked about. The, the last project that I'm able to talk about is a behind the scenes look at an enchanted traveling circus. So there are a few more projects in pre-production, but I'm hesitant to say anything about them until they kind of move further along the, that pipeline. They're all very different, I will say, from one another, although they do, they are related. Like maybe they're cousins, but not twins, like your eyebrows are supposed to be. <laughs> and then I guess that was the last question. So yeah, I hope that wasn't too boring for you. I can say... It's, um, it's good. It's good for me to answer some of the questions, I think, because as they are frequently asked, that means that a lot of people want to know what the answers are. So here's like one, <laughs> one stop shopping to get all those questions answered. So that was good. And I guess I will also say, I prefer asking the questions. <laughs> But um, if you sent a question in, I thank you for that. And that's, that's my story. I'm sticking with it. On the next episode, we'll be reviewing listener feedback from previous episodes, a look into the federal student loan debt relief sitch, and a look at the best 10 movies of all time, in my humble opinion. And of course, you can join the conversation as well on Discord, on seraphimpenumbra.com, and on the very new subreddit, Cafe Penumbra. See you next time. Today's show has not been sponsored. As always, let's keep the conversation alive. And remember, it's only a conversation when ideas are exchanged. Please take advantage of our community platform Discord server. 
And if you're interested in a way to support this show, you can buy me a coffee or get yourself some retail therapy in our shop that is so fabulous it has two P's. Thank you for stopping by Cafe Penumbra. I'm your host, Seraphim Penumbra, wishing you a jolly new now. What you have just witnessed was recreated from actual events as they happen live for the very first time. Today's programming has been brought to you in part by the letter 7 and the number blue. Cafe Penumbra is produced by PLC Media Lab. <laughs>